You're listening to episode 160 of the Tennis Files podcast. Seven do's and don'ts for doubles players. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. My name is Mirban Iranshad, a former Division I college tennis player. And on the show, I interview the world's top pros, coaches, and experts to help you improve your tennis game. And today is another solo episode, which is actually a follow-up of sorts to last week's episode on the seven do's and don'ts for singles players. And I got a lot of requests about making a similar type of episode and just in general, a content surrounding doubles. So I figured why not take this opportunity to follow up with a doubles geared episode on seven do's and don'ts. And Before we launch into this episode, I actually just want to let you know that I published a video very recently on YouTube analyzing five 4.5 singles points and then pointing out on video my top seven do's and don'ts. So definitely check that out on my YouTube channel at tennisfoz.com slash YouTube. I've been getting a lot of comments and views on that video and people have really liked it. And um, it's about actually, I think, 20 minutes long or so. So obviously we go deep into the analysis of uh, a ton of different points. So it was very enjoyable for me to do. And I got requests to do more of those lessons on YouTube. So I'll definitely keep doing those. Um, And shout out to Tennis Troll for letting me use their video on that one. All right, so now let's launch into this episode on double strategy. And I'd like to give you a bit of background Uh, on my doubles and just to kind of uh, show you that uh, it you know you can come from a place of not knowing how to move uh, you know what shots to hit how to anticipate in doubles to a more improved place with your doubles game so as a junior and as with maybe a lot of you I played mostly singles but mostly I mean probably 95 percent pretty much exclusively singles tournaments. I remember there was one tournament where one of my friends asked me to play and then for whatever reason I didn't and he got really pissed off. But <laughs> I don't know, that's just kind of a random memory. But um, it just goes to show you how little I played doubles. And I had, obviously with not playing much doubles at all, I had no idea about the fundamentals of doubles, uh, how to move, and even how to volley. Because I just spent about every minute on the court just hugging the baseline unless I got a short ball. And then once I entered college where I played for the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, shout out to the Retrievers, uh, it's a Division I school uh, for sports. Uh, Unfortunately, their program got cut a few years ago, which is really, really unfortunate. Um, When I got there, then my coach, uh, Keith Perrier, who I actually had 
on the show. I think it was episode number two of the podcast. Uh, just amazing to think about that one because that was many years ago and I was way more tentative on that episode um, than I am now, but uh, great progression. But nonetheless, um, Coach Perrier opened my eyes into the proper doubles positioning, the movement, and the strategy behind doubles. And although I learned a lot of doubles, I didn't really get to implement it that much in the sense that I didn't really play a lot of doubles in the lineup. I generally played like number five and number six singles, occasionally four and three, probably once, but um, yeah, I really did not play much doubles in the actual um, head-to-head matches. And so I still, at that point, had a long way to go to develop proper double strategy. And then after taking a break from tennis for a few years when I went to law school, then I started playing a lot of USCA League tennis, which is a lot of doubles, as you all know. Um, there's many leagues that are exclusively doubles. And then even the the, the uh, seasons where you have a mix, there is more courts of doubles and singles. And then there's a couple exclusive singles leagues uh, throughout the year, but uh, it probably varies depending on where you live. So in any case, uh, I picked up a few more strategies and, you know, forced obviously with playing so much more doubles to to really think about my game. And then when I started Tennis Files in about 2015, that's when I got to interview, as you all know, a lot of amazing expert coaches on the subject of doubles. I recently talked to Louis Caillé for Tennis Summit 2020, and he's coached um, Jamie Murray, his number one doubles player, and and just so many uh, doubles Grand Slam champions and so forth. And yeah, just a lot of great experts. And um, that's when I started to develop this really this deep hunger to learn the top strategies from the best coaches in the world uh, on doubles, of course, and also singles and just all the different aspects. But uh, I know that a lot of you, whether because it's like me where I played a lot of singles, pretty much all singles uh, throughout my life and didn't know much about doubles, or because you haven't had doubles coaching, I know that you want to learn some of the top things that you need to do and not to do on the doubles court. Uh, and another thing with with private lessons too, I in my experience, I found that I really was never taught about doubles strategy. You know, you're taught about mostly single strategy, at least when I was getting coached. Uh, and I had great, great coaches, most of them. Uh, but, you know, you think about, you get coached on like your technique and and strategy about singles sometimes, but not so much doubles. So uh, yeah, it's very normal for, for a lot of players to not really know much about how to play proper doubles. And even when you watch the pro game, you know, there's some differences uh, there that you have to be aware of and capabilities in your game versus what they're doing and so forth. So in any case, that's why I decided to put together this episode. And it's a natural uh, follow-up to last week's, like I mentioned. And for each one of these points, there is uh, either a mistake that I've made and learned to correct through experience or something that I just that I've in- implemented myself and found that's really worked. So I'm very confident in sharing these seven do's and don'ts with you to help you improve your doubles game. All right, so now we have reached the actual list here uh, with that background. So I'll start it off. Number one is do communicate with your partner frequently throughout the match. 
So a lot of times when I watch doubles matches, I see a severe lack of communication between the doubles partners. And this is usually indicative of a not <laughs> very successful uh, day on the court. So, I mean, you have to ask yourself, how are you supposed to be able to plan out winning plays and be on the same page during points if you aren't communicating with your partner? And the typical team that I see, you know, they might talk a bit in the beginning, you know, plan out a couple plays, but then once they start losing, they just end up going through the motions, almost like they've given up. And uh, all they're doing is just switching sides and moving up or down, depending on if they're returning or they're at the net. And then they go home and wonder why they lost so badly and, and how awkward it was on the court with their partner. But successful doubles teams always communicate on the changeovers and very frequently, sometimes, well, with successful teams, often between every single point. And I mean, just think about it. As the server's partner at the net, do I stand a better chance at anticipating my opponent's shot and where to move if I know where my partner is serving the ball, which requires communication? Or will I be better off if it's just a complete surprise as to where my partner is serving? So obviously you definitely want to communicate with your partner very frequently throughout the match. And speaking of communicating, this leads uh, directly into point number two, a very good segue if I do say so myself. Number two is do use signals on the serve and also on returns as well, which is a little more advanced, but it's fun as well and can be very useful. So using signals where the net player puts one hand behind his or her back and tells the player where to serve and where the net player will be can make the difference between holding serve and getting broken. And just a quick review of hand signals because, you know, it's very possible that uh, some of you listening or many of you have not used signals before. So the first sign that you give is where to serve the ball. And so you're going to point your index finger or pinky finger to the left or right depending on what hand you use to indicate either a wide serve or down the T serve. And you also use your middle finger to indicate a body serve. Uh, Warning, just be sure to point that middle finger down to the ground and don't flip it up or your partner will take it the wrong way. (laughs) Uh, and, And so that's the first sign. And then the second sign is where you yourself as a net player will go or will be. So those signs are a clenched fist is indicating that you're going to stay where you are. Uh, if you spread your hand out, kind of like where you indicate the number five, then that means you're going to poach. And if you have your index and fi- middle finger pointed down to the ground, which uh, just resembles a V, or if you flash your hand repeatedly uh, from a fist to spread out fingers, then that's a fake poach. So. Obviously, you could use different like, types of signals for these, but these are the ones that are uh, universally used, at least in the, uh, the U.S. and I think probably everywhere. So if you are talking to your partner before every single point, you could get away with not using signals. However, I still like to confirm what my partner and I discussed, especially when the, the point is super important and the match is close. So maybe it's for all, it's add out and, and you and your partner are, are talking about a play, uh, it, it's better to make sure via the signals 
rather than to risk making a mistake, which I have definitely done before. You know, there's been times where I've called the poach and then maybe I haven't poached or my partner has has, uh, called the poach and I'm serving and then I not move. And then we just get, uh, you know, we get broken because we're both on the same side of the court. That's not very good. So definitely a double check. You know, you talk and then you confirm with signals is definitely quite useful. And uh, and then with the return signals, actually, uh, my really good friend, probably my best friend, introduced this to me, which is uh, a little more advanced, like I mentioned, but you should definitely try it out. And what happens here is, let's say, if you are returning, then your partner who's at the net is going to give you a signal whether they're going to stay or whether they're going to actually poach off of your return. So let's have the example again where I'm returning, my partner gives me the uh, spread out hand, uh, which which indicates that he's going to poach. So then once the opponent serves and then I return, then my net partner uh, waits a bit and then actually crosses um, right before the opponent hits the ball, and I also cross as well. So a lot of times the server is just in the mindset of, all right, I'm going to hit my the shot after my serve back cross court, obviously you know away from the net player. But then meanwhile, the net player actually poaches, and so um, this is this actually uh, can get a lot of serve uh, a lot of servers, a lot of teams because they're not expecting this. And this play is really not used much at all, especially in USA leagues below, I'd say, 5-0 level. Um, but 5-0, 5-5, et cetera, like, they're actually using it a good amount. So uh, in sum, using signals are part of communicating with your partner, which is critical, and keeping you both on the same page with the same plan of attack. So... Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Number three... Another do is do use the poach, the I formation, and the Australian formations. Uh, Back on Tennis Summit 2020, my friend Ian Westerman from Essential Tennis did a great session on disruptive plays. And the purpose of disruptive plays, as he has said before, is to create chaos and to create uncertainty and doubt in your opponent's minds and disrupt their rhythm. Uh, By the way, I actually had Ian on the show, and I'll include a a link to his episode. But by using the the poach, the I-formation, and Australian formations, you're going to be able to pick up much more easily uh, short points by finishing off these points at the net off of returns. Uh, And you're also going to produce much more unforced errors. And these these plays, uh, just a quick summarization in case you don't know, so... Poach is to is to move across the court. You switch sides. The I formation is if you start in the middle of the court, um, both of you actually. So you're you're serving uh, by the T, let's say, and then your partner is in the middle, and then the net player tells the server. You communicate together which side 
each of you are going to go, well, yeah, you, which side that you're, the net player will go to and which side the server will go to. So with the Australian formation, you have both players on the same side or the same half of the court, and then you'll have one player move to the other side after the serve. And that's usually going to be the server. So let's say that if you are serving to the ad side, then your net player, instead of being on the ad side, is actually on the same half as you, which you're both on the left side. And then after the serve, um, the server is the one who usually is going to move to that uh, to the right um, into the right half of the court. But sometimes you can actually reverse this and then have the net player go back to the what would be the original position on that ad side, which is more of a kind of a tricky play that could work really well too. And so uh, one story that I have about how using the, the poach eye formation, Australian formations uh, can really impact your success on the court is that um, I had a, a, a USCA combo league match uh, several months ago because obviously, you know, there's not as much going on now. But what happened was we were uh, not doing so hot in the beginning as far as holding serve, but then we implemented the uh, a bunch of or a combination of these three plays here, and then we started to pick up steam. And then uh, fast forward to the third set tiebreak, where it is actually eight seven us, and my partner is serving, and then I decide to uh, to call. I formations on both of these points, um, whereby I would be actually moving to the side that the opponent would normally return cross court. And by doing this and by also realizing kind of the situation and that the player would try to kind of hit the more standard return because it was a kind of a tight time, obviously being 8-7 in the third set tiebreak, I was actually able to pick off both of those returns to seal the match. Um, so if in that case I would have had a regular formation, then obviously it would have been more of a long drawn out point potentially. And uh, by using kind of your brain, well, using your brain, that kind of, and using these plays, you have the potential to create a lot of uh, confusion and unforced errors and pick off a lot of uh, shots and, and kind of reduce your, your efforts and making points more efficient. So I really love using the poach eye formation and Australian formations. Point number four in our first don't of the episode is don't hit cross court when you're in a down-the-line ground stroke rally with the exception of a lob. So this is obviously a very specific don't strategy uh, or tactic, but it's one that has bitten me in the bum to say, uh, in an English style, I suppose, quite a few times and resulted in unhappy partners as well. So let's say that you've gotten into a down-the-line rally against the opposing team's baseline player. Usually this happens when one net player is lobbed because obviously you're, you, know, you might be in like a cross-court rally and then somebody switches it up, lobs your partner, so then uh, you and your partner switch sides and then boom, you're in a, a down-the-line ground-stroke rally. So the best play here is to keep working the ball deep down the line 
to then hopefully produce a weaker shot by your opponent baseliner. And you're doing this while your net partner ideally is moving toward your side to ca- to cause pressure on the baseline player, the opposing one obviously, and to try to pick off one of the shots or to cause an error. So in this situation, if you hit a cross-court ground stroke and it's not absolutely perfect and a sharp angle, then your net partner is basically doomed because all the net player on the other side has to do is volley it straight to your net partner. Hopefully not to the family jewels, but <laughs> uh, that's happened to me too. Uh, but another good play besides the obvious work the down the line, have your net partner cause pressure and move towards the center, is you could hit an offensive cross-court lob when you get a comfortable ball to hit that shot, um, which again kind of switches the, the uh, dynamic around with the positions and so forth. But again, executing a cross-court pass away from that net player when that's the side the net player is at is going to be very tough and low percentage. And you'd basically have to know that that opposing net player is going to be poaching on that particular shot to be able to execute it. So just keep that in mind when you're in a down-the-line rally to just work that down-the-line deep and then have your your partner be the one to be active and try to cut it off eventually or cause an error. So uh, number five, our second don't, is don't stand in the same spot at net while your partner rallies with the opponent. This is a huge one. I see too many net players, especially I would say at the 4.0 and below level, just simply because I've seen 4.5 and above, the net players be a lot more active. Um, you know, the, the players at these levels, they are just standing in one spot while their server or returner partner does all the work and just hits the ball. And that's fine if you're not, you know, getting the shots, I guess, but you need to be an active player at the net. And this means constantly making adjustments uh, in your feet, like moving up after your partner has hit the ball and moving back after the opponent has hit the ball and just creating pressure on the opponent so that they are going to wonder where you will be when they hit the ball. And so that you can adjust so that you can be in a more offensive position when your partner is hitting an offensive shot and then to be in a more defensive position with a bit more time to volley when the opponent is hitting an offensive shot. And so think about and execute your movements as a net player, because if you're just standing there, start being uh, more aware uh, of, of that and then keep making positional adjustments. And also, even besides the winning and losing, it also makes for a really good workout <laughs> if you keep moving as the net player. Um, but yeah, it's it's really crucial. It's something that I was just standing around, not moving at all. And then I watched some video of myself and, and was thinking, wow, what can I actually do to make an impact in these points? And the, the, the answer is to keep moving, you know, strategically according to what's going on in the point and to seek opportunities and ways to pick off the ball. Point number six, third don't, don't play too passively, keep the pressure on your opponents. And obviously there are some of the previous points that feed into this a bit or help um, hammer down this point, but this is a big mistake that when teams make it and they play too tentatively, as I've done before, 
they're almost certainly destined to lose the match. Uh, and what I've found myself doing in regards to this is I would sometimes hit tentative returns. I'd back up while I hit the shots or I was afraid to volley or to move and to poach. And I pretty much always lost these matches unless I made a change in my mentality. And good players are going to sense when the opponents are playing defensive and they're going to absolutely pounce on it. They're going to poach on your shots, which are going to be slower and weaker. And they're going to just destroy your weekly hit replies uh, at your partner or in the open court. And so in my view, there's really no room for passive, consistent play in doubles like you see often in singles. I mean, you do, and I have seen this sometimes. I remember at a at a sectionals tournament at the 3-0 level, I believe it was, maybe 3-5, probably 3-0, where the players were just constantly hitting these lob moon balls for like 30 shots a point, and it was really a sight to behold, I'd say. But if you want to move up in levels, you really have to learn how to play aggressive doubles. You have to learn where to move depending on where your partner and opponent is and the type of shot that you expect to be heading your way. You've got to learn how to pick off these shots and play more efficient doubles. And so keeping the pressure on your opponents in doubles is such an important component of your overall success. And, you know, that. That just flows from playing aggressively, not passively. All right, point number seven. It's it's a back to the do's. Do evaluate what your opponents are doing and how you can adjust to come out on top. Tennis, which we've heard a lot before, tennis is like chess. It's also like poker and many other games or sports. <clears throat> you can probably tell I like poker. Uh, you need to be able to read and understand what your opponents are doing on the court to maximize your success. You have to understand what strategies and tactics they're using, what their strengths and weaknesses are. I mean, imagine playing a doubles team where they're dominating at the net, but they're also hugging the net, and you end up losing 2-2, two and two, but you never tried lobbing them. I mean, that is something that you have to be aware of and adjust, but you didn't. Or imagine going an entire match where the opponents exclusively served down the tee and then poached, but you never tried returning down the line. I've seen these things happen to doubles teams before because they were not aware of what was happening to them. So taking a few seconds to evaluate what your, what your opponents are doing and how you can adjust and, and then actually adjusting, most importantly, will obviously make a big difference in the outcome of the match. Now here's a bonus tip for you. I always like to over-deliver when I can, which I pretty much always can, is to use tells to your advantage and to not give them off to your opponents. So it's a dual-edged sword or double-edged sword, I suppose, if that's the right idiom or uh, expression. So one of these, uh, an example, is to recognize the posture and the court positioning uh, and the balance of your opponents to tip you off uh, when to poach. You know, this is pretty obvious, I guess, but if, if you've got a player who's backing up and leaning backwards when they're hitting the ball, that's a great time to poach. And I actually use this to my advantage sometimes where I am kind of like leaning back and everything, and then I actually hit down the line 
uh, against kind of more advanced players because I know that when they see me in that bad position, they're going to assume cross court and then poach. A little pro tip there. And then also some tips on not letting off tells when poaching yourself. I mean, one is that you don't want to poach too early. You want to poach right before your opponent makes contact with the ball. I've heard some players and coaches say that, oh, to, to, to poach once the serve hits the ground. But especially if the serve is a slow one, then the returner will have plenty of time to recognize and direct the return down the line because they'll be able to see you moving. Uh, another thing is giving tells off when you're using signals. I've played with players and practice partners who, if you give them the poaching sign, they will audibly say yes. But yet, if you give them a stay or fake poach sign, they will not say anything. So this is a huge tell, in my opinion. And my friend once picked up on this and was able to dominate at the net because he knew that if uh, there was a yes, then there would be a poach. But if nothing was no nothing was said on the second signal, then it would be a stay or a fake poach. So be consistent in your replies to signals. Just say yup twice or yes twice. Uh, that's that's what I do. <laughs> so just to repeat these seven tips plus the bonus tips here. Point one: Do communicate with your partner frequently throughout the match. Point two, do use signals on the serve and experiment with using them on the returns as well. Point number three, do use poach, eye formation, and Australian formations. Point four, don't hit cross court in a down-the-line ground stroke rally unless it's a lob. Five, don't stand in the same spot at net while your partner rallies with the opponent. Stay active. Number six, don't play too passively. Keep the pressure on your opponents. Point number seven, do evaluate what your opponents are doing and how you can adjust to come out on top. And bonus tip, use tells to your advantage and don't give them off to your opponents. All right, awesome. So that is uh, that is the meat and potatoes of the episode, I suppose. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast. It obviously means that you will get these episodes downloaded immediately to your podcast uh, listening device of choice, whether that's your phone or computer or tablet. Uh, as soon as I publish the episode versus having to hunt them down yourself manually, and it would also help the visibility of the show as well. And you can just subscribe in. Uh, Apple Podcasts at tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts at tennisfiles.com slash Google Podcasts or Spotify at tennisfiles.com slash Spotify. You see the pattern here. Um, but it's very easy. And whatever app you're using, you know, there's a subscribe button. So thanks in advance for doing that. And to close, I have a tennis pun of the day. Your success at net depends on your approach. I hope you liked that and didn't bang your head against the wall there. Uh, and then the quote of the day. So this pun of the day was a little new there. I might keep that going unless I get a lot of hate mail, which is possible. Uh, and quote of the day is, you yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserves your love and affection. And that quote is by Sharon Salzberg. Very true. Uh, we see on the tennis court a lot of times Players are just straight up beating themselves up for mistakes when mistakes will happen. 
and then they're not giving themselves enough credit when they do when they are successful on the court. So very good quote there by uh, Sharon Salzberg. All right. Well, last thing is check out my YouTube channel. I've been uploading videos on there very consistently uh, these days. And, you know, I've got that seven do's and don'ts for singles players where I analyze that 4.5 match. So that's a fun one. Uh, And yeah, that's it. And I really do appreciate you watching and for all the emails and support and communications. And it's always great to hear from you. So feel free to email me at mirban at tennisfiles.com. That's M-E-H-R-B-A-N at tennisfiles.com. And hit up my Instagram and Facebook and Twitter um, for consistent daily updates on those platforms. All right. This is Mirban Aranshad. I really appreciate you tuning in and I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.